Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope you all had a great weekend. This is week two of a two-week trip on the road. I worked all last week in Hawaii. Yes, I know. It's rough. And then I flew straight to Arkansas over the weekend to be here for today and tomorrow. So I'm in Jonesboro, Arkansas today and tomorrow for the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training before heading to California on Tuesday night uh, where I'm going to work in Manteca, California on Wednesday and then I fly home on Wednesday night. Um, Upcoming PD events to remind you of, uh, if you want to get a jump on that, this fall still some space available in Charleston, South Carolina, October 11th and 12th. That's the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training. And then St. Louis, Missouri, also graining from the inside out December 6th and 7th. That, of course, will be facilitated by Natalie Bartabasso. Uh, Standards-based learning in action, that's going to be in Seattle, October 16th and 17th. i got links in the show notes for all of those events. Also, a reminder that my latest book, Redefining Student Accountability, is out. Got a link in the show notes for that as well. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week, of course. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Big thank you to longtime listeners. I really do appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is author and speaker Alex Cacciatani. Alex is an award-winning teacher and the author of several books, including the book Owning It. Now, in Assessment Corner, I'm going to talk about an assessment dilemma that I'm sure we've all faced at some point in our careers. So, that's today's plan. Let's get to it. In this week's Mindset Minute, I want to talk about why I think it's important to allow for the negative. I know that might sound counterintuitive when it comes to creating a positive mindset, but hear me out. Denying or ignoring or suppressing negative thoughts might be the unhealthiest thing we can do. Everyone, even the most positive person you know, has negative thoughts. And if they say they don't, then they are denying them, they are ignoring them, or they are suppressing them. We all have them, and they are perfectly normal. We're human beings. We're not machines. The key for me has become what to do when they inevitably occur. We have to allow for them. We have to allow for these negative emotions and negative feelings so we can learn to process them in the most productive and healthy way. Denying them just makes you a ticking time bomb of emotions. Those negative feelings aren't going to go away on their own. You're either going to process them and make sense of them or they will inevitably explode at the most unfortunate times. When experiencing negative thoughts, I, I try to ask myself this question at first. Is it true? And just because you think it, it doesn't make it true. You might believe it to be true. But the question really is about evidence or proof. What actual evidence is there that what you're thinking is true? And sometimes there is evidence. Someone said something to you or they did something or they acted in a certain way. You can't unsee or unhear or unexperience what it was. However, many times we got to ask ourselves, are we filling in the blanks? Like where we take bits and pieces of information or things and then we fill in the rest. I do it and I'm sure you've done it too. If there's no definitive proof, then either seek clarification from that other person or that, you know, the other people. Like, hey, what did you mean when you said that? Or, or why did you do that when? Or, or something like that to make sure that you're not misinterpreting what just happened. Now, if there's zero evidence, 
and it's just a story you're telling yourself, then a good response I've found is to reflect on where it's coming from. Why did I go down that pathway in my head? Like, why did I make those assumptions or jump to those conclusions? I make this sound easier than it is. I I know it's not always that easy when you're in the midst of it. I mean, that doesn't mean other people don't have to own their role in any misunderstanding or miscommunication or lack of communication or anything like that. That could have happened. They most certainly have to own that. And could they have been clearer? Sure. Uh, Could they have said what they said in a more artful way? Probably. But also, how many times have you or I run a narrative in our minds about situations that take an ounce of truth and blow it out into this like four-part mini-series, right? I think awareness is often the key. Awareness, I think, is a very powerful neutralizer. Like when you become aware of how upset you are, how angry you are, how disappointed you are, it often dissipates rather quickly. It's almost like watching yourself on TV, like as a third party. You're just kind of watching yourself and you think, wow, I'm really angry. And all of a sudden the anger is kind of gone. I feel like negative things are things we're supposed to experience so we can learn how to process them and make sense of ourselves, to understand ourselves, right? To understand why we react the way we we react and to learn how to move away from those habitual thought patterns and processes. So no ticking time bombs, okay? I believe we have to allow for these negative emotions so we can learn how to process them. They can, we can process those negative feelings through us, right? Once we allow ourselves to process the negative emotions to process through us, we're going to have a much better understanding of ourselves. Joining me today is Alex Cacciatani. Uh, he, Alex was the 2009 California Teacher of the Year and a top four finalist for National Teacher of the Year. He is the author of several books, uh, including Owning It, which was named Recommended Reading by the U.S. Department of Education. Alex is known around the world as the rapid mathematician, so we might, might have to get a little bit of a taste of that today. Uh, has a very popular TED Talk and was actually honored at the White House. So really excited to have Alex here. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Ah, what an honor to be here, Tom. Thank you so much. And uh, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, it's great to have you. Uh, you and I were just chatting before we hit record that we have a lot of mutual friends, a lot of mutual connections uh, in education, but you and I have never met face to face. So it's great to uh, to connect with you. So uh, as we get going here, Alex, and uh, before we dig into our conversation and the substance of it, can you you know, I gave a few highlights in the introduction, but can you give us highlights of your journey so far? Tell us a little bit about your career. Where did you start your educational career? Um, what were some of the pivotal moments and how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. I always like to say that I uh, I started my teaching career as a restaurant manager. I was actually, a, after college, I got a job as a social worker uh, in the town of Santa Barbara, California. And the pay was so bad that I had to get a job uh, at night bussing tables at the local restaurant. And, uh, you know, in a couple hours, I'd watch these waiters make more money than I made all week as a social worker. And so I thought, okay, you know, I, I see the way this is going. And uh, I started to phase the social work out of my life. And I started really getting into uh, working in the restaurant, eventually managing the restaurant. And I managed some corporate restaurants for a while. Uh, and so I really learned, you know, leadership skills. I learned how to deal with customer complaints. I learned how to 
you know, create training programs and assess people and things like that. And I really learned to sort of size up customers and, and sort of read the situation and read the room, but at the same time, take control of, you know, of their meal and, and provide good options and make recommendations and make sure everything was going well. Uh, but then in my thirties, I, I sort of had to admit to myself what I always knew, which was I had always wanted to be a teacher. And so I, I, move the the restaurant management out and and the teaching in and lo and behold you know i come to find that uh dealing with an angry parent was nothing compared to dealing with a customer that uh, you know found a bug in their food or something like that and so had all these wonderful transferable skills and then uh, have been in education ever since i started as a middle school math teacher in san diego california and worked my way um kind of north in San Diego and uh, spent most of my career as a middle school math teacher in Escondido, California at Mission Middle School. Uh, and then, like you said, back in 2009, I got to be the California Teacher of the Year. And so started getting asked to speak and to write articles and to share my strategies. Uh, and so I've been doing that ever since. I'm really excited now. A few years back, I got to go full time as a professional development uh, provider and uh, get to speak at everything from fancy conferences and fancy hotels to working with a group of teachers in their cafeteria, you know, around lesson planning and things like that. And uh, I'm just really enjoying writing, learning, sharing what I've learned uh, and getting to be on cool podcasts like this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate that, Alex, for sure. Um, and just for context, listeners, uh, being California teacher of the year is no small feat. California has more people than Canada as a country where I live. So, you know, it's not as if you are just uh, a, a big fish in a small pond. That is no small feat for sure. I'm also, I also love the contrast of uh, the fact that working in restaurants gave perspective on an angry parent. It's like, you might be affecting my child's education, but don't you dare undercook my steak. <laughs> that generates the responses that people get more angry about. Uh, that's, that's pretty funny there in terms of the restaurant. I, my only experience, I mean, I was a, uh, I bust in restaurants uh, when I was younger. I never was a server. My only sort of real experience on the inner workings of restaurants is watching Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. So that's probably where I get most of my restaurant knowledge from. Okay, let's, let's, let's dig into our conversation. Alex, and, and uh, I want to start with your assertion that every teacher needs to develop a personal philosophy or a set of core beliefs that they operate from. So from your perspective, why does that matter? And how is that going to impact my effectiveness in the classroom? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that we need to know, no matter who we are, what we're doing, you know, regardless of our job title, regardless of how long we've been doing it, but we, we kind of need to know why it is that we wake up every single morning, why it is that we wake up and we do the work that we do, especially as educators every single day. And so sometimes, you know, and especially in the world of education, we can get a little bit lost sometimes. We can get a little bit confused or lost about, okay, why is it that we're doing what we're doing? Why is it that I'm, you know, getting up and, and doing the work that I do every morning? And and sometimes we are reminded of that every single time we walk onto campus and we go, oh yeah, uh, you know, and the kid says hi, or the teacher, the, the colleague says hello, or we start teaching and we are often quickly reminded of that. But really having kind of a, a central whether you want to call it a philosophy or, you know, a guiding light kind of thing that just keeps us coming back, not 
you know, after one year, after two years, but year after year, that just keeps us coming back and, and kind of remembering why it is that we do what we do, I think is, is really important. You know, teaching is one of those jobs where sometimes, you know, we don't find out about the impact that we've had until way later. Sometimes we don't find out, we don't know at all that the, you know, the, sometimes students come back and they tell us, you know, all about the great things they learned in our class. Sometimes they never come back and that doesn't mean that we haven't had an impact on that. And so starting with ourselves and what matters most to us and what resonates with us and what gets us up in the morning, that allows us to then do the work to the best of our abilities and, and be our best selves as often as possible, I think. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I love that. It, it really is true that as you know, the, it's the delayed impact in a lot of ways. A lot of times students don't realize the impact we're having on them until they become adults. And then they look back. I've had on occasion, I've run into former students that were adults and they said, you know, they, they always have that. They always start with a disclaimer, which is, I know I was really hard to deal with as a teenager. However, I just want to tell you, and then they'll tell you some positive things. But the hard part about the job is, of course, you don't always hear that right away. So I, I think maintaining that purpose or that grounding of that philosophy is really important. But I want to follow up with you and just ask, do you, from your perspective, do you see there being the potential for any conflict? If what, you know, kids don't learn in a vacuum, they go to schools, they have several teachers. What if teachers have different philosophies or purposes or or what have you? Um, Is there there a, a challenge with that? And do you think there needs to be some alignment with teachers' philosophies or purpose? Or, or do you think that not matters? Well, I think that's where being part of a school community comes in, right? So you can have your philosophy in the classroom. You know, I, I think that uh, when you are, you know, the the most important thing or the, you, the most important thing that can happen in the classroom, right, is really the relationship between the teacher and the students. But then really the, the most important thing that can happen across an entire campus is the relationship between the adults in the building, as they say, right? And so you can have your own philosophy. You can just like, you know, you could have your own style, but now you're also part of something a little bit bigger. You're part of, you know, the entire school community or whether that's the the district community or whatever that looks like for you, right? At the whole building. But, you know, when we are part of something a little bit bigger than ourselves, then, then that's something that can even guide our own, you know, different philosophy. It almost, you know, could be like, a, you know, different musicians might have their own styles, but they're all under the label of jazz or they're all under rock and roll or rap, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, you know, having a guiding philosophy doesn't mean you're only limited to that. It doesn't mean it can't change. It doesn't mean it can't evolve. In fact, it should change. It should evolve. I'm sure we all remember when we were in the credential program and we had to write our philosophy of education, right? And so so we wrote a page or two on our philosophy of education. Well, if many of us pulled those out right now, what we wrote in our credential program, some of them might be spot on. I'm predicting some of them might have changed a little bit over the years. And so, you know, our core beliefs as to why we do what we do, it it should change. It should evolve as the years go on or even the months. I don't see it as mutually exclusive either. I think you can have your own personal philosophy, but we can all be in alignment with our purpose and our goal and our our philosophy and what we put at the center uh, of of that experience. Um, Alex, why are the first five minutes of class so important? 
Well, you know, it's funny because as we were just talking about restaurant management and, and working in restaurants, you know, we've all had the experience of walking into a restaurant, right? So imagine, you know, you walk into a restaurant and there's nobody there to greet you, right? So you you stand there kind of awkwardly to be seated and, and suddenly your experience starts to become diminished, right? Because you're walking in with an expectation of being greeted you know, or being seated or bring, you know, and so you walk into this thing and instead you're just sort of standing there awkwardly, not really going on. Those, those first few minutes really set the tone for, I believe, you know, the rest of your meal. And certainly that was my philosophy in the restaurant business. Students, you know, you're walking into that classroom and those first five minutes really, really set the tone as to how this thing is going to go. You know, right? You walk into a classroom and there's not much going on for those first five minutes. Uh, the teachers, you know, behind their desk sort of trying to find that thing they were trying to find versus you walk in, that teacher's ready to go, that teacher's greeting the students at the door, that teacher's got that plan going. And it basically just, it starts the momentum of everything going, you know, in the right direction. And so, to me, those five minutes are so very critical, and that's something that I, you know, really talk about extensively. The thing that we often forget about or don't get to as educators, as teachers in the classroom, sometimes are those last five minutes. Right? We're really good at saying hello to students, not so great at saying goodbye sometimes, because as teachers, we often run out of time. Right? We we sort of oh, I, I meant to get to everything, but now the last five minutes are rushed. And so, you know, just as critical as those first five minutes are really taking those last five minutes to wrap things up, to, to really figure out, okay, you know, you were just sitting in my room for an hour or you were a part of my class for an hour. You're walking out of here a little smarter than when you walked in or a little more informed about something, a little more developed with an idea of when you walked in. Let's stop and figure out what that is and then let's make sure to say goodbye, because the other thing I've learned as teachers, as people who work with kids, is sometimes when we go say goodbye to a student, that's the last time that an adult is going to acknowledge them until they come back to school the very next day. So we can never underestimate how critical it is to say hello, to say goodbye, to start that class off right, and to finish it strong as well. Yeah, I love that. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that first five minutes. Um, are you suggesting we dive right into the learning? Is it a little bit of, um, you know, rapport building? Is it a check-in? What What do you think is the, or is it all of the above? What are, what are some of the ways in which we can really make good use of that first five minutes? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I, I think that the first five minutes really starts a few minutes before the first five minutes, right? I, I call it the number one classroom management strategy of all time of simply greeting the students at the door, right? And so mm -hmm. if, if and when done effectively, the students are walking in, you're saying hello to them, you're connecting with them. That way, by the time that, you know, whether it's that bell rings or, you know, whatever it is that starts the class for, for you, by the time it rings, you've, you've had that moment of connection, right? And mm -hmm. so maybe it's, starting off with a really cool story. Maybe it's starting off by, you know, just showing a, a great picture of something that you took because you were somewhere and you saw something that you'd been talking about in class. And so you took a picture of it in order to make it much more relevant to the students' real lives, right? Maybe it's showing that really cool video clip. Maybe it's telling that joke. I'm not saying we need to dive. I don't think we should actually dive straight into the content, but I do think we need to find ways to get to it as quickly as possible because 
you know, our teaching time is really limited. And so we want to squeeze as, as much as we can out of every single minute. But, um, sure. but, but, you know, having, having some openers, having, you know, good solid, and really all you need is maybe five or 10 really great ways to open a class. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, do that once a week or so once every couple of weeks, and you can just kind of, you know, cycle it through with different ways of opening the class. But I do think my, my all time favorite way is to just tell a really cool story. When, when we tell stories, right, we are engaging the students, we're helping the students get to know us a little bit. And it's something that uh, they're going to remember. Pe- people remember stories. You know, we've all been loving and listening to stories since we were little kids. So that's always my favorite way. Now, the key here is whenever you're telling a story, try to make sure to connect that story, the content of that story to the content of the academic stuff that you're teaching or going to teach. Yeah. I like that recommendation of, of having five to 10 ways and the idea that, cause I, I do think kids thrive on predictability um, and it doesn't have to be mundane, but the predictability of like, for example, uh, we do a Monday morning check-in and we yep. just kind of take, take temperature. We do a, you know, what are you excited about on Friday? Maybe Tuesday it's, I, I tell a story and I connect it to the content, just some sort of routine, which takes the pressure off a teacher, but also gives the kids a little sense of like, we have this routine where we check in with each other and this is how we begin the classroom. So I think that's really, really great advice. And I think that the other part that I really loved was this idea of saying goodbye. Cause a lot of times, you know, it's, it's, uh, you see it on TV, TV school, I often call it is when the bell goes and then the teacher shouts out all of the most important directions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's not, you know, it's, it's not really how it works, but, uh, but we do have to be mindful of, uh, but we are rushed for time for sure. So what I'm hearing from you is just be purposeful, be intentional, whether it's to check in and build relationship or whether it's to dive into the learning, there's intent and purpose uh, behind it. Now, Alex, you also talk about the four things teachers say that sabotage learning. So what are those four things? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's, I, in no particular order, really, one of one of them is really, and I I only I only know this, think this, believe this because I am guilty of doing this, right? And and did it for many years until I started to sort of realize, hey, you know, wait a minute here, what's uh, what's going on? And so one of them though is really say is saying, you know, this this is really important. It's going to be on the test, right? And and I've listened to you know a lot of your your thoughts on assessment and things like that. Um, but when we say to students that you know you need to know this because it's going to be on the test, obviously what we're saying is that the test supersedes the learning, right? The test itself is more important than the learning. I also think it's just kind of a it's just kind of a lazy way of trying to motivate students to pay attention to to get to know the information right uh, and so that is one that I always um, that I always sort of encourage teachers to kind of stop saying the truth is if a student says to us hey why do I need to know this we should have a pretty good reason as to why they need to know it, whether it's going to be something that they're going to need for the next unit, right? Whether it's going to be something that they're a skill that they're going to need for, you know, when they're in their first job, whether it's just something that's going to make them a more complete, more educated human being. Like as teachers, we've got to actually have a reason, have an answer for that question. Uh, and the, the other thing that's nice is when we have an answer for that, 
when we know in advance why it is important that students know how to do something or or why we're covering something, then we are sort of gathering our own knowledge about that as well, right? We we know deep down inside why it is that we're teaching it, and so if it's a, it, it, if it's not important to us, the students are going to smell. They smell that from a mile away. I mean, I taught middle school most of my career, but high school students, college students, you know when your teacher's faking it, right? And you know when they're just not really that interested in something. Uh, and so that I think is really important is knowing and then knowing why we teach something, why why it's important for students to know something, and then not just sort of passing it off as, hey, it's going to be on the test. Right. The second, another thing that I think that we say, or that I hear teachers say a lot is, you should have learned this last year. I think this is one that is really, really damaging, right? There are, you know, look, maybe I did learn this last year, but I don't remember it. Maybe I did learn this last year and I just need the teacher to say something that's going to cue me to go, oh yeah, that's right, right? But a lot of the times when I hear teachers, when we say, hey, you should have learned this last year, you know, what are we really saying? We're really saying is, you know, this, this, you know, either your teacher didn't teach it or you weren't paying attention. There's not a whole lot of real positive that comes from that. And, and you know what I think, Tom, that it really comes down to is, you know, not to, to shed all of the academic language and, and the philosophical stuff. Nobody likes to feel stupid. Yeah. And so often, you know, when, especially being a math teacher, when I hear adults tell me about their negative experiences in math class, they always, or they often zero in on this moment when the, when they felt really stupid, they felt really dumb. Mm -hmm. Maybe they just didn't know the concept. Maybe they were almost there, but there was this thing that happened in their class where they were meant to feel dumb and nobody likes to feel dumb. No, No. And so and that's really a lot of times what it comes down to is sure. when I when I feel empowered, when I've got the skills, I'm going to keep moving forward. When I feel yeah. dumb, I shut down. I mean, many of us have had this situation, the, the experience of just maybe being in a, a country that was foreign to us and we're standing there in the middle and everybody's buzzing around us and they're speaking a language that we're not familiar with. And we're just trying to like find directions to get down the road. And there's this moment, right, where we just feel like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. That moment can be really depressing and degrading. It can also be very empowering if handled the right way. And so I always, I often encourage teachers to, you know, get rid of, hey, you should have learned this last year and just turn it into something that's positive, which is, oh, you know, you, you don't remember this or you didn't cover this. Fantastic. You're going to love this right. class today. Right. No, I want to I want to react to those two first before we get to the other two, because you're absolutely right about the test. Everyone knows that what they're being taught will eventually be assessed or tested or whatever the situation might be. If that's the only reason that I have to learn this material is because you're going to test it, then clearly it doesn't have much value to it. Um, So everybody knows assessments are going to occur. That's not the reason that we're learning something just because it, it, it really does sound like coercion, almost like trying to leverage or coerce uh, kids to pay attention. The, and the, the second one you talked about, it reminds me of something I say a lot, which is that should statements are shaming statements. Every time you should somebody, you're really shaming them. Like you should have learned this last year. Right. So I'm shaming you for not having remembered it or learned it. So I think your points, I think those are two great ones. Let's let's get to the next two. What are the other yeah. two things that so the, teachers the other two- say- 
yeah, the the third one is really one of my favorites, which uh, you know it 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 sort of seems uh, well. Uh, the third one is really that when we often tell students, "Hey, stop talking," right? Mm. A lot of times, what we're saying is, you know, a lot of times. Look, sometimes we just need to get control of our classroom, and and we need students to stop talking so that we can, you know, mm. continue. A lot of times, though, what we're saying is, you know, stop talk. Please stop talking. What we're what we behind that is stop talking and stop thinking right mm -hmm. when we have students stop talking we don't want to shut down the learning we don't want we don't want to just tell students to stop talking so that you know so that the the thinking absolutely stops as well a lot of times mm -hmm. stop talking means you know stop everything that you're doing and so I encourage teachers to really think about stop talking and what? What is it that you want them to do, right? Stop talking and start thinking about or start stop talking and and you know and you know write down the four things that you you know that sort of mm -hmm. stuff but but having something at the end of stop talking and maybe you can find you know more gentle ways of, of saying <laughs> stop talking things like that we've all got our own styles right let's refocus maybe here <laughs> exactly you know stop talking is yeah, just a kind of a yeah. general term but but i sure. you know i i am in teachers classrooms all the time i mm -hmm. i especially work with and enjoy working with new teachers who are really struggling a lot of times with classroom management uh, and so stop talking becomes almost this catchphrase for just, you know, shut everything down, be quiet. And so what, again, what I encourage you to people listening or teachers to really think about is stop talking and what, right. and then the fourth thing is really, you know, in, and you can, you know, a lot of different variations about this really is, you know, Hey, why didn't you do your homework? A lot of times we, you know, well, you know, we're checking the homework or, you know, mm -hmm. we're walking around and a student won't have it. And, you know, and we'll, student doesn't have something and we'll say, hey, why don't you have your homework? And what students really are hearing is, you know, quick, think of something to say really quickly to get the teacher, you know, off your back. Right. And yeah. so the, the student, the student knows, oh, I didn't have my homework and maybe they're feeling some shame around that. And, and so they're sort of quickly looking for something, you know, that, that they can sort of get out of it, get out of it with. Instead, thinking about saying something like, you know, when the student says it doesn't have their homeworks, just simply sort of taking a moment and going, tell me about that. Yeah. Right? Thinking about like, huh, you had it yesterday. What was different between yesterday and today? And actually having, helping the student have let me rephrase that helping the student realize and verbalize that they were that maybe they were in control of the situation maybe there's something that they could help with but but having them actually stop to reflect a little bit on why it is that they didn't have their homework or whatever you know you can you can replace the word homework with you know, no, I know what you're saying. Is. but instead yeah. of like i said instead of just jumping to hey why didn't you have your homework just go and tell me about that and that's one of my favorite sort of teaching, teaching phrases that I encourage everybody to just have and, you know, the, the Rolodex of their mind and pull out whenever possible is tell me about that because it's right. really, it's, it's a non-judgmental way of getting information from students. If a student doesn't have their homework or whatever, you know, they don't have, you know, make that the beginning of the conversation, not the end of the conversation, not the, uh, zero again, mark them off, walk on to the next student, right? Again, Make it the beginning of the conversation, not the end of it. I like that. 
I'm interested, um, Alex, in your take on uh, data testing and all of that that surrounds that. Um, now, this is going to take me, I'm going to set up this question a little bit. So forgive me, listeners and Alex, I'm going to take a bit of time here. Um, so let me set the question up this way. On, on the one hand, many educators, not, not just teachers, have an aversive reaction to any talk about data, whether it's, you know, not just big data, but, you know, standardized tests, but it's, it's data in general. Um, I've heard, for example, that it's not fair to assess teachers on the student's level of achievement because students have their own free will to invest or divest in any assessments or any learning. So I've seen some things on Twitter where people say, well, you can't judge a teacher by the student's results. But on the other hand, it's not unreasonable for any jurisdiction to ask the question of whether or not the investment, particularly in public education, is producing the desired result. Um, schools don't exist so a group of adults can be employed. Schools exist to produce important societal outcomes for children uh, and adolescents. So I say all of that to ask you um, how to help teachers find their balance with data. You know, beating teachers and principals and schools up with data is not helpful in society. Uh, it's often demoralizing and it's not good for anyone, including students. However, we as educators, we are accountable. We're not immune to accountability. We are accountable to the public and the, especially in a public school system. So where do you land with data? How do we help teachers find the balance with data? And what do you think is the most reasonable approach to data? Yeah, for a cup for two years uh, for my school district, I was I served as um, I was helping to roll out the sort of the new data program, right? And and I guess my official title for that part of the job was a kind of as a data coach. And so I would it was my job to go in. I'd go into schools. I'd work with the staff, you know, during the PD day or during the afternoon meeting, and show them kind of how to use the new program, how to compile the data, how to run the reports, and then how to take the data and then use it to, you know, somehow design or modify instruction and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I wanted to do a good job. I hustled hard, right? I, I had my cool presentations and, and things like that. Um, but then I would notice that there was this thing that happened let's say I was, I'd be working with, you know, the fourth grade team and there would be four fourth grade teachers and they would run their reports and they would get out the butcher paper and they start doing all of the, you know, they'd, they start charting things and the teachers who had the, you know, I'm putting air quotes here for the people listening, the good data, right? They were all in and they were leading the discussion and they were really wanted to do this and they want to talk about this. And then the teachers whose data didn't come out so good, the test results didn't come out so good. They were, you know, clearly a bit lower. They would sort of slide down into their chairs, right? And they would sort of not be quite willing to participate in the conversation. And they'd really just sort of sit there kind of like you said, demoralized and just not, not feeling good about themselves. And, and rarely would I see the teachers who were leading the charge sort of lift up the teachers who, you know, who were sort of slinking down in their chairs. And so I really became interested in how do we talk about data, but how do we talk about data with teachers who might be uncomfortable with it a little bit, but how do we talk about it in a way that is, you know, that is kind of empowering. That is where, where we're willing to, open things up and, and talk about it. It's almost like talk, I always say like, 
there, there are two things that are very uncomfortable for people to talk about data and money, right? Yeah. It's one of the, it was one of those things where people, I hope you don't mind me asking, but how much did you pay for, there's this weird uncomfortableness about talking about money, right? Well, I noticed that sort of same thing about data as well. And so, you know, I'm still sort of perfecting the model and, and not that I'll ever get to perfect, but one of the things that we really got to keep in mind is that the, the data doesn't belong to us, right? The data belongs mm -hmm. to the students. Mm -hmm. And so it's, yes, it is our, the, the teachers, you know, have this umbrella of data on the students, but, but really going, okay, th this belongs to that student. And, you know, you can determine to what extent you want it to be a reflection of your own self and teaching and things like that, but realizing, okay, that this, this goes with the student. And so let me get, let me focus on that. So let me remember that behind this data, there's a real student, you know, who wakes up every day and comes to school every day and with real issues and things like that. And then the other thing that I really found helpful in helping to talk about data, and I know that you covered this, um, I know that you covered this on one of your podcasts was really using some some fun and clever analogies that are effective as well right and so you know I always like to use the the one of uh, an autopsy autopsy versus an MRI right where right. an MRI we're looking we're going in and we're looking at okay what's going on here let's figure out a plan of action let's mm -hmm. you know let's let's tweak things let's modify things let's come up with a, a plan a goal so that we can move forward based on the data or the information that we have autopsy much more geared obviously toward all right let's let's crack this open and see what happened here right let's right, let's right. let's look at it you know in reverse and so yeah. you know i think that those two things i've found uh to be really really effective also you know when it, in terms of like when we're if we are looking to accelerate a you know a student or accelerate some learning one of the analogies that i really love is you know getting you know having a group of students in a car, you know, going 40 miles per hour, but we got to get these students, they're a little, you know, in a car, maybe going 50, 60 miles per hour. And, you know, I don't want to turn it into a confusing middle school word problem, but mm -hmm. uh, eventually that car is, is going to catch up and, and we've got to get them on track. And so those two things, but at the same time, just really creating a culture, whether it's in our meetings, in our classrooms, across our school, where, you know, data is, it's just this thing. It's like money. It's okay to talk about it. Right. right. Getting past that. I'd be curious to hear what were your thoughts on that as well. You know, as you know, really the, the assessment expert and, and what you've, <laughs> what you've seen in, in terms of this, creating this culture of it's okay to yeah. talk about data. Yeah. I think there's a couple things I think of. One is I think sometimes we gather data without knowing why we want the information. And a lot of times that's mm -hmm. driven by a question. So what question are we trying to answer that our current information can help us answer? And so there's where we seek the data. And if we're using large scale assessment data, I want us, especially as leaders, principals, assistant principals, superintendents, to have conversations about large scale decisions, as opposed to trying to force a large scale assessment into a day-to-day -day classroom assessment, decision-making sort of process. It doesn't really impact that way. So for me, I think you're on with that we've got we've got to i know to use a sort of current phrase we've got to normalize the idea of using good information i think sometimes the misunderstanding with the word data is it just implies a spreadsheet and that's not it's good information it can you know it can be quantitative or qualitative it needs to be information upon which we base decisions so i'm with you on that i think we've got to try to get to a place where people are okay um, but that a lot of times comes from leadership and in, in being yeah. reflective as a practitioner if my data is less than favorable 
if the approach is, you know, what's wrong with you, then teachers are going to retreat and they're not going to be open to that conversation. But if it's how can we help you, how can we help you grow, or how can I grow and how can we work together as a team, you create a different atmosphere around data. So I think that's yeah. a, a really important approach to it. Well, and I so as we, we, I was just going to say, I think you make a yeah. difference too, which is a lot of times we under we underutilize the qualitative data as well, right? right. And we For think, sure. oh, quantitative data, here come the spreadsheets, right? Yeah. Here come yeah. the charts and the graphs that I've got to look at. But being able to say to a student, hey, last week you said this, mm -hmm. and this week you said this, and look at the learning that you've shown in yeah. between what you said last week and what you said this week. That is mm -hmm. good, solid you know, yeah. effective data, qualitative data that we can use, yeah. you know, to really show students that, that they're learning as well. And so I, I, I think, think that's yeah. really important that it's not just the spreadsheets and the charts. No. We've got to really the, utilize that qualitative as well. I tend to think that the closer you get to the classroom, the more qualitative data we should be looking at, right? If a district mm -hmm. wants to look at its, you know, how are we doing as a district, then we might look at quantitative data and spreadsheets and just to get a big picture or a view from 30,000 feet. But the closer to the classroom you get, the more we should be utilizing that and finding some balance in all of that, yeah. of course, is always helpful. Okay, one last one as we finish up today, Alex, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press you for time here. Um, you get into an elevator and uh, you know where I'm going with this, but you get into an elevator, another teacher walks into you and they're relatively new to the profession and they push four and they're going four floors and you have four floors to tell them what's the most effective way to get off to a good start at the beginning of the school year? What's the most important thing? They turn to you and say, if there's one piece of advice you have for me in getting off to a really strong start in every school year, what would that advice be? You've got four floors to tell them. All right. So that means I've got four different ideas, right? So because I because I already at the first floor now, Alex. The elevator's moving. Floor one, you got to <laughs> greet your students at the door. It's the number one classroom management of all time. All right, management strategy of all time. Floor two, you got to get their names correctly. Get their names correct, and by that I mean pronounce the students' names correctly. Nothing is more empowering than a student. For a student, believe me, my last name is Kajitani. Nothing is more empowering <laughs> than a student, teacher who gets your name right. Nothing right. is more degrading than who gets it wrong. Third yeah. floor is you know really learning something about every student, knowing your students' interests. And that fourth floor is knowing your students' interests isn't enough. You have to bring it up. You have to incorporate it into the content to show the students that you were paying attention. Love it. Love Ding. it. That was yeah, that was a a, a a very slow elevator, but great, <laughs> great advice. I, I have to say, no, I really appreciate that. Just giving you a hard time there. Um, no, good advice. And I think that's true. It's sometimes the smallest things that make the biggest difference. And then they trust you. You have that relationship. And now the teaching gets that much deeper. Uh, the, the kids will start to really buy into what you're you know, they're picking up what you're putting down because they yeah. know that you really do have an interest in them. All right. Two questions left as we uh, finish up. These are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, here's the first one. Uh, and Alex, you can take this in any direction you want to. But um, educationally speaking, what gets you out of bed in the morning? You know, one of the things that I am so excited about right now is I am on a mission to help every kid master their times tables. Now, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't believe what a hotly contested topic throughout education mastering the times tables is. And everybody's got an opinion on it. But, uh, yeah. you know, at, as somebody who has been teaching math at, at all levels for many, many years, I believe that this is an absolutely 
solvable issue and it's something that we can do something about it. So mm-hmm. I, I ended up, start, I started the program multiplicationnation.com. It's become okay. very popular. It's totally free, totally available to anybody who wants to use it. Really fun, engaging videos, assessments, uh, yeah. rap music videos, things like that. And so I believe that if we could get every kid to master their timetables, and I believe we can, again, regardless of you know, where they come into it, how old they are, what grade level. If we could do that, I believe that we could really take this solvable issue and it would change the way that students learn mathematics and, and the way that teachers teach it as well. If, if every kid could come in, you know, have at least from third grade on could ha- come in having those times tables mastered. So again, super excited about uh, multiplicationnation.com. And that is just something, like I said, I keep saying it over and over. It's a solvable problem. We just, uh, you know, we've just got to make sure, sure it happens. Yeah. I think those fundamentals are important. It's not the, it's not the end, but it certainly helps students get to those higher level thinking skills and being Absolutely. able to do deeper dive and problem solving when you're not wrestling with those fundamentals for sure. Uh, finally, as we finish up, we're going to finish up on a lighter note. Um, I always talk about how much I love food, maybe a little yes. too much. Um, you live in Oceanside, California, which is honestly one of my, I told you before is one of my favorite spots. And I, you know, don't sleep on Oceanside. I know people talk about San Diego and they talk about Los Angeles or right. Orange County. Oceanside has an incredible beach and a great pier and, 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 and some great restaurants. So you live there. Um, so I want to ask you, where's your favorite place to eat? What's the best place to eat? Where, if you're in Oceanside, California, hole in the wall, nice restaurant, whatever, where's the best place to eat in Oceanside? Well, San Diego County, of course, famous for the fish tacos and uh-huh. speaking, I, I know you know your stuff because right at the foot of the Oceanside pier, there's a tiny little place called Tin Fish. And they have the best fish tacos in, you know, in the area. You can, uh, you go down there, you order at the window right below the pier there. You can walk up the beach and sit on the sand and eat the tacos. You can eat right there. You can go out onto the pier. You can take them wherever you want. But uh, Mm -hmm. Tin Fish in Oceanside is my favorite fish taco place. And uh, the scenery will not disappoint. Yeah, I love that. Uh, fish taco is one of my favorites. Uh, if you don't like fish tacos, we can't be friends. That's kind of <laughs> how it works in my life. Um, Alex, before we go, uh, can you give us a little snippet of the rapping, uh, rapping math, math teacher, the mathematician? What, 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 give us a little flavor of that. Absolutely. Well, you know, the one of the first songs I ever created was I uh, was we were studying adding and subtracting decimals. Uh, And so I noticed that the students were having trouble structuring where to put the decimal point. So I wrote a little song called the itty bitty dot about the decimal point, (laughs) how to add and subtract decimals. And it goes, now what in the world is that itty bitty dot? Yo, I just can't remember. And it's making me distraught. I saw it in the price of the item I just bought. It's the decimal point. Yeah, now you're getting hot when you add and subtract them. There must be a rule. So listen to my rhyme and use it as a tool. Just line up the dot and give it all you got. I said, line up the dot and give it all you got. And you will never forget how to add and subtract <laughs> ever again. Oh, we got to, we got to put some music behind that one. That could, that's got uh, all kinds well, of opportunities well, there, Alex. That's all fantastic. You, all you got to do is check it out. If you just search for the uh, rap and mathematician on YouTube, I think that video has gotten over Excellent. a quarter of a million views. Wow. Wow. Fantastic. Uh, uh, love it. Love it. Uh, Alex, uh, uh, thanks, thanks for being here, listeners. You can and, of course, should follow Alex on social media. It's at at Alex Cacciatani on Twitter uh, or X, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, the website is www.alexcacciatani.com. 
Um, Alex, it was great, great chatting with you. Great meeting you for the first time. Um, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, an honor and a pleasure. Thanks so much. And thanks everybody for listening. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to explore a particular assessment dilemma I encountered last week, which I thought made for a pretty interesting discussion. Last week, I was working with an elementary school. It was K through six school, and we were working on assessing one of their high priority standards, which happened to be an informational reading standard that progressed from retelling in K-1 all the way up to identifying main idea and summarizing the text in grades four, five, and six. Uh, we did some work, other work around assessment as well, talked a little bit about pre-assessment, all of that, but um, I wanna focus on that high priority standard and the discussion or the dilemma that kind of emerged uh, from that uh, whole experience. One of the school's curriculum coaches came up with a which I thought was a really great idea. And uh, I've seen this done before, but I, I like the way she approached it. And that was to print each grade level's rubrics, their summative assessments, and any materials they used, as well as a student sample. And the exercise was for each grade level during their designated day and time. And I worked with two grade levels per day. Um, their, their job was to read through the progression, the entire progression, and just get a sense of how this standard advances before or after, depending on the grade level, before or after their grade level um, occurs. We asked the teachers to examine their particular grade level, though. Put, put your grade level into context of the K-6 progression, and we asked them two questions. First, look for strengths. Do you notice any strengths in terms of how your grade level's approach fits within the overall progression? Like, where is that happening really well? And do you notice any places for stretching? Like what stretches do you notice do you think you need to add to create a more seamless progression uh, going forward? So overall, I have to say the progression was quite strong. The materials are pretty good. I mean, we of course found some nuances and finite points to improve upon. For example, you know, there were certain grade levels we'd say, well, maybe we need a higher quality text or um, thinking about aligning the, the grades four, five, and six criteria because they were very similar. It's the same standard, but the, and the rubrics were similar, but not completely aligned, and they could be. So there's points of refinement for sure, but it was a really great exercise to kind of advance their thinking and help them see the bigger picture around this macro learning progression, if you will. The curriculum coach uh, said something to the teachers as well, and, and she was quite right about this. She said, all of this stuff that I'm showing you is in our Google files but it's definitely more effective when you can see it all in one place. And I, I tend to agree with her. So I thought it was a great activity. So here's where the dilemma comes in. During one of the sessions, a grade two teacher brings up a very good question about students who are still behind in their reading. She asked this question, how do I assess students if they can't read the passage? Do I read it to them? And if I read it to them, how can I assess them at an achieving or an excelling level? That's their third and fourth level on their performance scale. Her point was that it's a reading standard. So how can I assess them on reading if they're not reading? I think that's a fair point for obvious reasons, but is it that simple? Now, if we know the student can't read the passage and we insist that they do, this will predictably amount to pretty much a useless exercise. You're really not going to gain anything from this if we know the student can't read the passage. Now, if we use a more accessible text, that say at their reading level, then the sophistication may be lowered, right? It's modified, it's a modified text. 
which means there's less to comprehend, less to summarize, less to kind of think about. So are we robbing them of other opportunities to process a grade level text, even if they don't read it for themselves, right? If we read it to them, then there is the opportunity to process something that is a little bit more substantive, a little bit more sophisticated, where they make meaning, determine main ideas and key details, even if they haven't read as a part of the standard. I mean, on, on the one hand, it would seem obvious that since it's a reading standard, they should read the passage. Now, not knowing the individual student at all makes this quite difficult for me to provide any specific answers to or questions because students requiring tier three intensive individualized support need the uniqueness of their circumstances to be considered. There's a reason it's personalized and individualized. There's no generic answer for tier three supports, really. I mean, there are some what you might call promising practices, but of course you have to consider the individual in all of that. That's the nature of tier three. So this assessment corner is not about the answer because until you know the specifics of the individual, you'll only be best guessing as to what might work. And you're probably thinking about it right now saying, this is what I do, but that's not based on the student she was thinking of, that's based on the student you're thinking of. So remember, it's always individualized. But here's the dilemma. On the one hand, we could be quite orthodox and stringent on the fact that, hey, it's a reading standard, therefore they have to read it. However, when we examined how they gathered evidence on this reading standard, it was interesting. Students were given a sheet of questions and they were expected to write their answers. Huh. So I posed this question to the group. If this is a reading standard, why are the students expected to write their responses? What does writing have to do with reading? Now, don't get me wrong. It, it was a really great and important discussion that got all of us thinking. It wasn't contentious or confrontational. It was just thinking about it from a different lens. I mean, the discussion, of course, centered on the logistics of having each student answer orally and how time consuming it would be and what would the other students be doing and so on. All of that. All of that, that is very true and very real and certainly a lot to consider. However, I then posed another question to the group. So what you're telling me then is, on the one hand, are we saying that we should be all strict and orthodox and by the book when it comes to the students part in this assessment? insisting that they read the passage. But we're okay with introducing a confounding factor on our end because it's more convenient for us to score. Essentially, a confounding factor is anything that is not essential to the standard but could potentially interfere with drawing an accurate conclusion about the learner. It's a real dilemma that requires some thought and intention for both the short and the long term. If we read the passage to the student, then there, you know, that, that has a, that's a short-term solution, but we have to ramp up the intervention schedule to address the limited reading skills and get them caught up as quickly as possible. Now, it's going to take some time, but we still have to do it as quickly as, and urgently as possible. If we have them read it and we prompt and support them during that process, then we have to ensure that we're not doing too much interfering with the results. We're not doing too much of the thinking. It's complicated because the uniqueness of each student has to be considered as we develop our plans for support. 
Maybe the only definitive thing I'll say about it is that there has to be a plan. I'm not pretending to be a reading expert, but I think I would lean toward in the short term reading the passage to the student to find out where they are with the idea of processing text. I mean, not being able to read doesn't mean you're unable to think. I mean, there's going to be a Venn diagram, of course, between the level of reading and the sophistication of the analysis, etc. But just because I can't read a text, you know, think of our English English learners or, you know, just because I can't read it doesn't mean I can't think. So I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind. So if it's developing their ability to read at grade level, then we have to focus on putting a plan in place to accelerate that as fast as possible, but with reasonable expectations for growth. There, there are always going to be choices. That's why this seeking of pure objectivity and assessment is a fool's errand. There's always something that could potentially skew the results, even in multiple choice. So the answer is really to try to account for those through a variety of assessment formats. Methods aren't interchangeable, but the formats can be, right? So if we decide that the most important or most effective method would be constructed response, that constructed response could be oral or written. I think the key to making these important decisions is to go out of your way not to make them alone. Work as a grade level, work as a subject-based team, in conjunction with the learning support team or learning assistants or whatever your language is around that, and any other experts in your school to make the best decisions about how to assess students with unique circumstances, that has to be accounted for. There will always be choices. And these dilemmas force us to make some tough choices. And as I always say, none of us have all the answers, but collectively we do. Have a short and a long-term plan in mind to maximize the current opportunity to gather evidence about this student while keeping an eye on the ultimate outcome, which in this particular situation was a student being able to read at grade level, right? So sometimes we've got to make choices that allow us in the short term to gather some evidence about the student, but we keep our eye on the ultimate outcome, which is the student fulfilling the expectations of the standards in its totality. Okay, that's it for this week. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks. Remember to follow the podcast and or me on Twitter or X. That's at Tom Shimmer, at Tom Shimmer Pod. Instagram is at Tom Shimmer and at Tom Shimmer Podcast. Uh, TikTok, at Tom Shimmer Podcast. And you can follow the YouTube channel as well. Also, a reminder to email the podcast, TomShimmerPod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner. Or if you have any suggestions or feedback from me about the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. A reminder to check the show notes, both for the links for the upcoming professional learning events, as well as my new book that is available. Uh, Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating and review on any platform is going to help grow the podcast reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 